and I, and I went on up to Parliament House and met with members of Parliament and things. And you know, I was probably about 20 and just doing my own thing in terms of trying to build this industry. And um, I look back at that and think, well, we've got a lot of the same issues, um, but it is about the passion of the individuals involved in the industry that will drive it forward. G'day and welcome to episode 63 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalee. Today, I'm very excited to be sitting down with Georgie Somerset. First, I'd just like to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. To find out more, you can head to www.lawd.com.au. Georgie Somerset is a rural leader who's developed an enviable CV through her broad experiences. For more than 30 years, she's juggled being actively involved in the family beef business while working for some remarkable organisations. Amongst her resume, she is the president of AgForce, a director of the Royal Flying Doctors Service Queensland Division, and a board director for the ABC. Georgie's a passionate advocate for Australian farming, regional communities, and particularly supporting women in the agriculture industry. Georgie, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Ollie. It's great to be on. I love what you're doing with the podcast, so terrific to contribute to it. I'd like to start off, I think, given your vast experience, it's kind of no surprise that you're one of the Antola Shirt Ambassadors this year. Can you tell me, you're, you're a supporter of Antola before a shirt was even named after you. What was it like, um, or, or what is it like having, I guess, your personal story attached to, to a shirt which people will be wearing right across regional Australia? Oh, it's, it's really humbling. I mean, I, I have a bit of a, a chuckle when I put on my Nat and my um, Liverpool planes and I think about those women. So I, I think it's probably um, a great way for us to sort of be, be modelling our support for different people. And um, I just love what Antola's doing in telling not only rural women's stories, but, but rural men's stories as well, but also um, finding a, a different way that you can share the message um, and, and make it relatable. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's um, that w- when I was talking with Alicia, I was like, it's just so cool. Just the approach of every shirt has a different person named after it. And, and it's for, for quite a special cause as well. In terms of the, you're juggling a number of roles and we know the last 18 months has been uh, interesting with COVID. Now I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I'd love to know how, how have you found juggling the different roles and, and I guess the changing environment from both the farming end, but also in terms of, yeah, with Ag Force and, and the ABC and Royal Flying Doctors as well. Yeah, look, COVID was really interesting in that um, I think the, obviously travel stopped, um, but life was really busy because all of the boards that I'm involved in were considered an essential service. Um, and so in, in some cases it was um, weekly briefings but sometimes it was daily briefings about what was happening and from a board perspective um, we know there's a lot of responsibility to make sure those organizations are managing the risk and and caring for their their employees and so that is that's front and center is are our employees safe and have we got a a safe space for them so I found it incredibly busy Um, I'm so thankful that we had um, a great satellite internet connection and that some heavy lobbying in the few years prior had meant that we got Skymaster Plus in that March and it meant that I could do all of that and access a whole lot of Zooms. But some days my meetings would start at 6.30 or 7 and go through till you know, 5, 5.30 
and you were just on on constant zooms um but i think it just gave us such an opportunity to show that by being regional or remote didn't it didn't make any difference to how we could function um and i'm really excited about the I guess the walls we've broken down and the, the myths we've cracked and um, the opportunities we're going to create from more flexible work systems. Um, for me, this is the norm and I was excited to see other people really embracing it. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, because your working from home started quite some time ago, but it, at the beginning of last year, we saw the seasons shift pretty dramatically in, in farming. Did, did it place extra pressure on your business? Essentially, I guess you being remove from from the business during the day or on multiple occasions <laughs> it, it's funny because last year was actually the, the longest period of time I had been at home constantly um I think ever without children so obviously I spent a lot of time here when I had small children um but both before I had children and since I've had them um I've I've worked from home so we had a bit of a chuckle that it was probably the longest time we'd spent together with just just my husband and I in the house. Um, so look, I, I'd also had an injury in 2019. And so COVID was actually a bit of a blessing um, in my re rehabilitation um, with not, not traveling. And we've just learned to flex around my work. And at the moment I say I work full time or farm, it's just that I get to do a lot of it from the farm and I'm working for different bosses. So it's not, I don't go to work for one person five days a week, but there, there's not many days when I'm not doing something that's related to the, your farm roles. And so in a sense, our business has, has flexed and worked around that. And we're also really fortunate for um, quite a bit of last year, we had one of our, our sons home working with us as well. But I think that's, that's the beauty of living on the land is you can flex the work around um, what you're doing, either the off-farm work or the on-farm. And it's something I'd love to, what well, we're definitely going to talk more about, but I do want to turn back the clock a little bit. And um, you did, you, you've always been around farming and around ag. So can you tell me a little bit about where was home for you, Georgie, and, and what was life like as a kid? Yes, I grew up in the New England region of, of New South Wales, so deep water Bolivia. And um, the first sort of 10 years of my life were um, spent riding horses through the New England uh, doing primary correspondence school and, um, you know, just, just beautiful high country horses, cattle, sheep, some cropping, um, but, but, but actually reasonably remote in that area because transport wasn't easy back in the 70s. Um, and when I was about 10, we moved to Western Queensland between Winton and Longreach, so very different country. Um, and so then had my sort of, you know, formative teenage years. So I did correspondence and school of the year out there and um, then went away to boarding school. And when I finished school, I, my parents had been dabbling. They knew that Western Queensland, Winton's always had a strong um, interest in tourism. It was the sixties when they sort of really started to do quite a bit with tourism out there. And so by the time, you know, the mid eighties, my parents were hosting some small groups on their property and, um, I may have said something like, you know, you're going to do this properly and or, or get out of it and how about I come back and do it, we do it properly. So I left school and took a couple of friends home and we actually set up a farm tourism operation or it was a, a little bit bigger than the average. We had accommodation for 75 and camping for a couple of 125 van sites and I ran that for a couple of years and it was just an amazing immersion to be running a business on your parents' property um, and, and also providing a window. So we're running station tours and just people could call in and 
you know, the, the trip around Australia was a big thing even then, and so, but we didn't have a lot of infrastructure. It was before the Hall of Fame and, and roads weren't sealed. Um, but I had a great time doing that. And then I, I moved away after a couple of years and um, had, a, had a thought about, do I go west and work on properties, buy a pair of red wings and, and a ute and go west? <laughs> or do I go, go east and, and market the bush? And, you know, it's, it's a funny sort of, I can still remember kind of going through that decision-making process. And I moved to Brisbane and got jobs marketing tourism. And um, But interestingly, within 18 months, I was self, I'd, I'd started my own business. But Brisbane was about to have Expo 88. And it, it was an incredible time. Like we had six months of all these international people living and working in Brisbane. And um, so tourism, tourism really took off um, for Queensland at that time, but also for inland areas. So, yeah, so for me, it was, it was always about ag and um, I would spend a lot of my weekends in Brisbane if I wasn't at a tourism show, marketing tourism, trying to get back out to the bush anyway. Yeah, wow. In terms of, so that was um, late 80s and 90s, I'm guessing, but in terms of the, the agritourism piece, it, sound, it seems like only recently we've really started to coin that term. But as you've shown, it's it's been around for a long time. Have we been slow in the uptake, or do you think has the approach not hit the market yet properly? Or, or yeah, yeah. So look, I was involved in um, working with some great operators back then, and we actually set up both uh, Queensland Host Farm Association and Australian Farm and Country Tourism. So we set up industry bodies and we had we did an enormous amount of work and we actually modelled a lot of it on what Europe had done, but cognizant that in, in Europe, you know, it's 10 minutes between towns and here it can be, you know, two to three hours. Um, but there's been some great operators who've been bringing visitors to farms across Australia, you know, since the mid-80s and, and earlier. Um, and some of those people who started back then are, are still operating. But I do think it's a bit of a cyclical thing that, Often people do it because they've got um, they've got infrastructure. So that in our case, out, out at Winton, we had shearers quarters, and back in those days, um, the shearers stayed. But even if they didn't, you had to have the shearers quarters at a certain standard. Um, and so there was a, a bit of an imperative that if you were going to have to have all that equipment and, and infrastructure and make sure the screens were up to date for three or four weeks of the year, then why not use it for the other um, forty-eight weeks of the year? And, yeah. and I saw the same thing with people whose children had gone away to boarding school. They had or left home. You know, they had a spare cottage. They had three spare bedrooms. They had a beautiful home. They, they actually were looking for ways to share their life. And so at one stage, I think I had, you know, 55 host farms across Queensland alone. So the, through the 90s, we had a lot of farm tourism happening and agritourism. So I, I'm watching the current iteration um, with interest, I mean, what we didn't have back then was the internet. So we actually had a central booking system so that you could ring one number because it was very hard to find these farms. Um, and so now we just, you know, we were pretty excited when we got faxes um, and, and we've made such, a, such progress. So I'm excited to see that we're having a resurgence of it, but it's certainly not the first time we've done this. Um, and I got to work with operators from right across Australia, but I th and I think it's a wonderful way to share um, our life and our stories uh, with travellers and particularly now we're going to have a, a resurgence I think of people travelling inland. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. 
I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Have you ever pinched yourself as you've been going and you've seen, I guess, the success of things like Airbnb and and whatnot and you're like, far out, our business model wasn't actually that far off what they've gone and created. It's just utilising the latest platform or technology. Uh, it's great to see, isn't it? And I mean, there's, there's you camp and hip camp and all these sorts of things. And it's, I think it's fantastic because it provides people with options. Um, there are still some of the same issues. You know, there's, there's public liability, there's local regulations, there's planning. Um, those were, were some of the same issues. And I mean, one of my first ca- trips to Canberra on my own, um, I remember going to visit NFF and um, Rick Farley to give him his due, this extremely young person sort of came in and um, requested a meeting and he gave me a meeting and we had a really good chat about the role that tourism played in um, providing an alternative income stream to both individuals like farms, but to regional communities and the importance of regional tourism. And and Rick didn't think it was a key priority for the NFF at the time, um, but he gave me the time of day. And I think that was my first... um, my first real taste of you could, and I, and I went on up to Parliament House and met with members of Parliament and things. And you know, I was probably about 20 and just doing my own thing in terms of trying to build this industry. And um, I look back at that and think, well, we've got a lot of the same issues, um, but it is about the passion of the individuals involved in the industry that will drive it forward. Yeah. And is that something you found in that ad- advocacy space, I guess, where it is rather than sitting around and waiting for a group or others to do it, it's kind of... It, it's just been Georgie's job just to go and yeah, get in front of people and, and give your two bobs worth for the sake of others. Yeah. I'm probably really passionate now about us. Not necessarily you know, back then I helped create a couple of organizations. I'm really keen for us to use as many of the existing organizations that we've got now that I think one of our, it's very easy to set something up and do your own thing. And I, I, I'm really passionate these days about seeing how we can collaborate more and rather than setting up new entities and um, essentially having lots of players in the same space that how can we actually work together and be more effective um, and in advocacy and, and particularly in sort of the agro-political space, how can we actually spend less time on governance and more time on, um, you know, policy, stakeholder engagement, um, talking about what we do because I think governance is something that I... I I'm really interested in and I love the strategy side of things, but I also know that it can be an incredible burden for an organisation. Um, so I'm really keen to see how we can actually all work together more um, rather than duplicating efforts across rural communities. Yeah. Georgie, I've got a question just around, I guess, your early career. So you, so you left school to give, to, to set up, or I suppose get the family tourism business really running. And then you've, you moved across to Brizzy. Was there I suppose, an idea of, of where you wanted to see your career going or was it very much, yeah, just just take it as it comes and see where it goes? Oh, look, I think, 
I think at the time that whole industry was quite small, but um, I grew up in a family where you, you just got on and did things. And so I never thought that I couldn't um, make a difference. I just wasn't probably sure of how to do it at times. So after about 18 months of working for someone, I set up my own business in rural tourism consultancy. And that was really interesting because you got to work with um, lots of different organisations and, and communities. Um, and from that, I was, you know, I was living out and I'd moved out to the property here and I was still running that consultancy. And I got some great opportunities because the, the government, the Queensland government actually wanted to support the development of farm tourism. And that sort of led me into things like regional development and community development. And I think one of the things I've learned along the way is not to fill my life um, with so much that I've got no space for the opportunities that come along because often some of the greatest opportunities I've had at the beginning of the year, you wouldn't have even known they were going to arrive. Um, but I've, I, look, I had the opportunity to, to really gain facilitation skills and learn a lot about community development and regional development and that sort of facilitation space, which are just incredibly transferable skills. And I think they were great. Um, it was a great grounding for what I've gone on to do in terms of working with communities and industry um, and across lots of stakeholders, because in a sense, you're just facilitating discussions all the time. Um, and it's it's sometimes handy in the family as well. You can kind of become the facilitator until I uh, call you out on that one as well. <laughs> and in, in terms of working regionally, and I think it's quite a, it's a really nice conduit. So you, you're working for yourself. Did, did you ever see, I guess, we, uh, in terms of having career aspirations that you needed to move uh, beyond beyond the being on the farm or or was it very much yeah the farms where you want to base yourself and yeah so look I um I started traveling up here in 1988 and I moved up here in 89 and I had a um my fax machine had cost me three thousand six hundred dollars and I used to cart my fax machine oh, up here on yeah. weekends and then I was based up here and I used to go back to Brisbane probably every week or other week because I thought you had to be visible um so I was um I, my mother had sent me an article about a woman based um, on a property outside Goulburn who was running a um, the McDonald's Australia, um, as in the fast food chain. She was running their marketing campaign from her property outside Goulburn. And I think it was, mum didn't love the idea of me being here, but she also knew that I really wanted to be based in the bush. And um, so she was sharing with me, I guess, someone who, who you know, dug that ground before me um, and so I just went on I, I actually did do um, a degree in freelance journalism or a, a diploma in freelance journalism got some work at the local paper which is an hour away um, and just continued to build up different skills and different clients and but never at any time did I think I needed to go and live somewhere else I just made it made it work and made it happen um, with a fax and a landline in those days and in terms of I guess the question I'm I'm asking I'm not going to dance around the, the bush here, but being a female working in agriculture, like many people may have just seen that as being just the easiest excuse to say, oh, it's in it's the too hard basket, Georgie. You you've got to be able to show face and work in the office like everyone else. Did did you face many barriers in those days? No, and that's I mean it's interesting for me because I sometimes think that's the picture we paint for ourselves. So I had a mother who. Um, you know, she could muster and, and do everything with us at any time, but she also um, 
did an enormous amount of community work, did all our books and taught us in the schoolroom. Um, but I also saw that she was quite gracious about realising that there were different roles. And, and so while, I, while I've always been able to work outside, um, I've, I've also done taken on doing the office work and the strategy because that is naturally what I, you know, have no problem doing. But I sometimes think that we question ourselves. So there's been times because I'm not outside as much as some women are and I'm not, um, and certainly these days I'm, I'm doing a lot of office-based things, but sometimes we can sort of say, oh, am I as, am I as rural woman as other people? I, I think it's what works for every family and every business. Um, and there have been times when I've been full-time on the property and just doing some volunteering roles in the community. And there's times like now when I'm incredibly busy or farm. But for me, the family and the business always have come. It's been a discussion about um, what can we do and what can we take on. Um, but I also learned once I'd had a couple of children in quick succession that if I didn't do something off the property, um, I would literally go quite mad. And uh, being hemmed in, I, I'm not terribly good at housekeeping. There's a, a straight up confession. I'd rather write a strategic plan or, or head out bush than um, clean the house. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it was a it was a realization for me that I actually needed to have other challenges and needed to contribute. Um, I've done a huge amount of volunteering, but I get so much from that and it's incredibly rewarding to work with organisations and, and achieve things with them. Have you found in terms of, yeah, stepping away from some of those volunteering roles, what's been an indicator for you in terms of the, yeah, your input has been beneficial or, or in terms of, yeah, what, what you actually get personally out of being involved in those volunteering and community-based roles? What's been the trigger point when it comes to stepping away? Oh, great, great question. Um, I mean, some of them are natural. Your kids are finishing at the local school. Um, but I, look, I, my thing is that you sort of know naturally when, when you're not absolutely relishing being at the next meeting, function, project, whatever it is. Um, but I have a bit of a commitment to myself that I will try hard not to leave an organisation without someone else who can step into my shoes. And so... Um, I've got, I'm a great believer in trying to um, mentor or shadow someone in and, um, and I've had people do that for me and it's, and it's incredibly empowering when someone says, look, you know, I think my, my time's up in 12 months' time, thought I might, you know, you might start to take on some of these things. And so I guess I had that modelled to me in different places and I think it's really important that we do that, that we, we identify that we're not gonna, we don't need to be there all our lives to be legitimate, legitimate and to contribute um, and it's probably just a season and I think it's important in volunteering as well I mean some things you, you will stay with all your life because you just love them but I think it's important that we recognize that and we also look for other people to bring in or um, skills to develop within the organization so we don't leave them in the lurch but you do have to move on and you you walk away I was um, president president of the Queensland Rural Women's Network and um, even as immediate past president you do you just step back you want the next you want the next president to be able to make their mark and and do their thing um and i think that's exciting for them as well yeah no it's it's an interesting one isn't it because particularly like people from the bush they take on a, a lot of different roles and i and i guess you're um a perfect example of that in terms of what you're juggling but yeah it takes an immense amount of organization but also forward planning and and i guess selflessness actually where it, where it is putting the needs of that organization first when you say that it's about yeah getting someone to shadow you and, and bringing 
the next kind of generation into the business. It's a very progressive approach. Yeah, and look, our, our communities our communities would fall apart without volunteering. You know, in the South Burnet, where I live, there's an incredible number of people who volunteer and I'm really involved in a community foundation and some of the work we do is... Um, is, is fantastic and we're you know we currently run a community leadership program each year and have had about 150 people go through that and I mean people have an expectation when they turn up that the governance is in place that they're, they're going to be in a safe space and that risks have been managed and um, and that just has to be done professionally so you do have to treat volunteer roles or well, I, I treat them as something that they're like work you have to be professional about them and you have to take your, the risks seriously um, but on the other hand you don't have to do it forever and so, you know, there's, there's, and I think there's um, skills change as well. When I look at the, um, I got really involved with our local picnic races and uh, the Burrendown picnic races. And we went through a really tumultuous time when Queensland Racing um, were trying to uh, remove the, the registered race days and um, we did our work then, but there's a completely different set of skills used now for social media. So I'm not the social media guru. And I love that we've got someone who's incredibly passionate about the races and, and does a great job of that. And I think that's the other thing too, is that you don't have to be able to do everything yourself. There are other people who can specialise. Um, and for me, it's often about um, where, where do other people's strengths lie and how do you bring out the best in other people in an organisation so that they can all shine. Entola Trading was established in 2015. Their founder, Alicia McClarman, from far north Queensland, set about creating work shirts slightly differently. Made from Australian cotton, every single shirt has a story, and they are tied to the most inquisitive and fascinating people that rural Australia has to offer. You can check out their whole range at www.entolatrading.com. And for every shirt that's sold as part of this series, Entola will be donating $2 to the Ronald McDonald House in Brisbane. To find out more, you can check out the show notes below. I'd love to know, Georgie, on that. So you, you've completed the Australian Rural Leadership Program. Um, in terms of what did, what did that course allow you or enable you to do when it came back to having input, whether it's yeah, in, in the family farming business on various industry boards or even whether it is just the, the local community races? Uh, it was a fantastic um, program. I had a great cohort and, um, you know, stay in touch with some quite a bit and, and others not as much, but, but I have a really strong connection to a lot of people I did that program with. And um, I, I was really fortunate to have um, a, a really big aha moment in, um, in the first module. Um, it wasn't so pleasant to work through in my own head over those, those couple of days and to process it, um, but the, the real... I, it really became quite ingrained in me that the only person I can manage is myself. And, and it's up to me to manage myself and it's, it's up to other people um, in terms of how they, so I can provide an environment and a safe space and the organisation and all those sorts of things, but it's actually not my responsibility um, about how other people react or respond. And that was... That was just one terrific learning for me. But I think what it, <clears throat> what it meant was that I could be much more effective in whatever role I was in because it was about bringing my best me to the family and being, and being there for the family and being there for our business um, and trying to make that strong for the next generation. Um, 
but then also bringing the best me to whatever role I take on and <clears throat> being professional about that as well. So um, I'm forever grateful. So I, I didn't actually get around to uni. And I still have the letter that says, no, you can't defer for a second year. Um, and, and it was on that program where someone said to me, because I had sort of said, oh, well, I probably should go and do a degree. And they just said, why? Who are you trying to please? And so it was that sort of a group of people who are around you when, when you don't necessarily have a university alumni and you don't, don't live in an area where there's lots of people like you. It gave me a, a group of people who challenged me, questioned me and made me think very um, strategically about my own um, motivations. And obviously you work through your values and your purpose but to come out of that with people that you can still bounce ideas off and you can call and know that you've got a safe, a safe space to, um, to float some ideas, I think is incredibly beneficial for people in regional communities because often you are the only person who um, thinks like that in your community. And, and I just, I absolutely love my community and I love my village. Um, but I also know that I need other people that I can talk about strategy and governance and um and risk and those sorts of things. Yeah. You, you've mentioned the love for your local community. Can you tell me a little bit about the South Burnett region and, and where it is that you call home? Yeah, so our little community is Jurong, which is about an hour west of Kingaroy. And, and we say we're west of Kingaroy because that's our service town. So our, our mail run is an hour, you know, we're an hour from town. Um, but we have a little school here, which, you know, back in the, it was a free settlement around here. Soldier settlement was a little bit east of us. Um, so free settlement back in the um, 1915, 1920, that area, it was built around sort of uh, dairy and then you had pigs to, to have the, um, the milk because the, you were actually dairying for the cream. Often had some cropping. Um, it's Brigalow scrub country and we're surrounded by sandy forest. And so we have a mixture of, um, you know, breeding and, and fattening country for cattle. Um, and it's quite closely settled. So there's a, there were half square mile and one square mile. And so many of us have multiple blocks around here to be viable now. And that's built up over many generations. So we actually have quite a few families in the district where there's three generations. Um, we're, we're one of those. And that that's incredibly stable, I think, in this day and age. And, and we're seeing young people you know, in their 20s and 30s come back here to raise their families and live on the land, but maybe have off-farm jobs. And so um we we're i guess there's more flexibility now to be able to do that some of them are, are fifo um and some of them are, are doing it from the property so i've been incredibly fortunate that my children went through a small school um where we had a great group of parents um and i've had a i've got a, a slightly wider than our district village of uh, families who we've really made sure that our our children grew up together and have strong connections um, most of the children from around here go away to boarding school because high school is um, a minimum of 55 k's away um, and they they go all over. They might board at a student hostel in, in Chinchilla. Um, there's a state boarding school in, in Dolby or they go to Toowoomba or Brisbane. So um, our kids get scattered far and wide, but um, there's an incredibly strong community spirit um, around our, our community that, that has a, a shop, a school, couple of churches a bowls club and a tennis court so it's it's your archetypal village ollie oh it's got what you need as well though good little place to have a couple of different meeting spots and get people together yeah absolutely and community and to me community is incredibly important um you know you for 
someone like me, you arrive in a community like this and, and you have to make it work. You, you, you've chosen to be here. It's up to you to actually make it work. And do you think your kids will come back back home? So all our, all our children are working in agriculture. Um, you know, one is back in the business. Our oldest is back in the business. Um, our youngest is, is working uh, for AACO up over the border in the NT. Um, and the middle one's currently working for um, Suncorp Agri. And um, I'm really excited that they all see a future in agriculture and they're all really involved in the business and, and a great, um, I guess a great, great risk mitigation or I can doesn't keep me awake at night is that I know that um, they all know enough about running these properties and running our business now that if something happens to either of us, they can actually step in and, and, um, and run the show. And that's a really interesting space to get to because I think when they're all teenagers, there are times when I sort of could feel that if, if something happened to one of us, then how would the other, you know, make it all work? Um, but we're at a space now where they're all young adults, they're all um, successful in what they're doing, but they all know enough about our business that they can contribute. So I'm not sure who will end up um, actually in the business, but I think all of them will be involved at some stage because they're really genuinely interested and they've put so much of themselves um, in, into the business, you know, during uni holidays, during the, the dry season, uh, sorry, during the wet season when um, you've got time off from a station or actually, you know, coming back to actually work in, on the property with us. So it's, it's great to see and it's incredibly rewarding um, to see that next generation coming through. And we're fortunate that my parents-in-law, um, my, my father actually lived with us for quite a while um, on and off before he died and my parents-in-law still live on their property 10 minutes away they're in their 90s and they still look after themselves and I just love that um, they still pass on their wisdom and, and have a lot to do with their grandchildren as well yeah it's pretty special about farming businesses I know my uncle he's in his what is he mid 80s now but um, obviously his son in his late 40s and 50s is back on the farm and, and now the, the youngest one's actually up working out of broom and and the eldest is, yeah, working on one of the local properties as well. So it's kind of, it's so cool to see, I guess, the evolution of the family coming back into the businesses and even kind of over those teenage years where they've got a million different ideas and possibilities of what they can do. And ultimately when they choose agriculture uh, as a path that they want to explore at that kind of point in time and straight out of school, it's pretty, pretty incredible to see. Yeah, it is great. And during COVID, we led some discussions through our um our Red Earth Community Foundation, we had some online discussions and one of the, I remember one of the great expressions that came in through that was talking about the intergenerational weaving of knowledge. And um, I just love that concept that succession planning sounds so linear, but but it is intergenerational weaving. You know, how, how can we learn from the, the younger generation? How can we pass knowledge on and, and how do we weave all that together? Um, and I remember the other phrase that really struck me was, was how do we be bold, be brave, but also be the bridge? How do we provide a bridge of knowledge? Um, and I think about that between the generations and between businesses and um, even between industries. It's, you know, there's a, you know, one of the things I think we all got to do last year was actually be a bit reflective about what was important, but also how could we be all more effective individually? And I'm hoping we don't lose that in, um, in the rush back to busyness as well. Yeah, no, you you reminded me. I'm I'm on a panel, uh, and it'll probably be after this episode goes live. But in 
the question, I guess the, the topic is such is what's the role of young people uh, in the, in the COVID recovery. And this is, it's not specifically just in agriculture. And I think your point there around that intergenerational knowledge sharing and, uh, and engagement is so important, but it's also fundamental to agriculture existing and, and building resilience. What, what do you see as the role of young people in this COVID recovery? Well, young people will be our future. I mean, I, I started my first business before I was 20. And so I, I don't, I believe that young people, um, they have energy and they have vision and they have drive and we need to harness that. I was incredibly fortunate that I was given opportunities by, um, when I look back now, you know, people who were a bit younger than I am now. So that, that is, I think, part of it. We need to let young people drive the future and we need to make sure that, um, for me, as, as sort of the, the middle generation, I guess, that we don't stand in their way. So we, we need to step out of positions. We need to let young people step in. Um, but certainly in business, they will be the ones that have the ideas. And what I think we've tried to do is provide it. What I talk about is scaffolding. So it doesn't really matter whether you're um, a graduate or you're just you're volunteering at a community level or you're a CEO or a chair of a board, you need to be supported. Um, and it's a bit like painting a house. You can be painting the gutter, you can be painting a three-storey house, you still need some scaffolding. And so if we can provide a safe space um, for young people and some um, guide rails for them, then I think that they can be just so powerful in a business. Um, and the main thing we need to do is not put up the roadblocks. We need to, to let them have a crack. Um, you know, it, they're, they're certainly at a different risk profile, so you need to manage the risk, but there's far more to be gained by including young people and their thinking. And they are the future. They're the future of agriculture. They're the future of our communities. Um, they will drive the economy. So we, we need to make sure that we listen to that voice and actually enable it um, while providing wise counsel and, um, and hopefully not being negative. Yeah, the, the level-headedness where it comes in <laughs> off experience. Uh, and I think that's, yeah, you touched on there around the, the energy, vision and drive. And I, and I just think like that enthusiasm that young people bring into businesses, like it's, it is truly energising and it's, um, I think for ag, you don't have to look too far to see where the young people are and, and the businesses they're involved in. And yeah, it's the, the creative thinking and it's the ideas that come from it. Uh, and, and I guess it's, yeah, how do you use that energy as fuel, but then how do you help steer them in the right direction to really have impact and make progress? Yeah, look at, and I mean, at AgForce, what we've actually done is set up a young producers council and um, I don't know, other state farming organisations hear that young voice as well. And we're really wanting to make sure that they don't just work on um, some of their own projects, that, but that we actually ensure that they've got a voice across other, um, you know, other structures within the organisation. So we're making sure that they're on the policy committees and the commodity boards and that we hear their voice. And I think that's the important thing too, that it's not that you're putting young people in a, a box and keeping them there, but actually that we make sure that they're the, um, they're integrated into our structures. Um, and as I say, by my mid-20s, I was certainly involved in, in industry um, and, and certainly having my say in writing submissions and doing all sorts of things. And so um, I really believe that we have to harness that energy. The other thing to remember, though, too, is that people come in and out. And I, you know, I had five or six years where I was doing nothing or farm. I was really focused on my family and our business. 
And I think that's the important thing for young people to realise that, you know, you often have a lot of time and energy in your 20s. You might then be going through in a consolidation or career or family phase in your 30s, but you'll come back to it. And, you know, I, I started back doing some part-time things when I took on a role with the National Rural Advisory Council. And I was away a lot when my children were in primary school, but, you know, they've survived. Um, and they were fortunate that they had they, they had a parent here all the time, so that was fine. Um, but but I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done that sort of travel until they were all in um, in primary school. And I think that's the thing too, that you have to sort of work out what's possible without, um, it's never going to be easy um, if you want to challenge yourself. I think that's the thing that you, you have to, you have to juggle things, but it doesn't mean to say that you can't um, flow in and out of doing things as well. And you don't have to do all, everything all the time. Yeah. I I did. Well, I think you've touched on it really well there in terms of a question I had for you, Georgie, was you sit on quite a number of boards, but your whole career, you've always been involved in more organization than just one. Um, and so, so when it came to actually hitting pause for a little bit and just focusing on, on being a mum and on that family was, was it something you, you second guessed about or was it just trusting that that was the right decision and, and that's what felt right to you? Yeah, no, it was just, it was trusting myself enough at that time and that it was the right decision. Um, and I had recently lost my mother. So I just, I needed time with my family and just to be really centred back here. Um, you know, I had a one-year-old and a, a couple of primary schoolers and and you, I think it, that's probably a, a thing that you get as you get older and you get more confidence in it is trusting your gut and just trusting your own instinct. Um, and I think that, you know, there's... Um, the human ability to have that sixth sense is probably you know, not valued enough and we need to tune into that more. I often say I couldn't do what I do. I, well, I don't think I'd find it as easy if I lived in a city because I'd, um, I'd probably be very busy in inverted commas. And what I get to do when I come back here is I, you know, it's a three and a half, four hour drive back from Brisbane. It's a couple of hours if I've been in Toowoomba. And that's time when I can actually switch off and, and decompress. And I learned early on to sort of compartmentalise things that when I'm back here and, I'm, and I came back and I was with the family, I was, I was mum and I needed to get lunch ready the next morning for school. And um, they didn't really care where I'd been or what I'd been doing. What was important to them was, you know, signing their homework and, you know, what had been happening out in the paddock. And so I think that's the other thing is, is, whatever you're doing, just managing yourself so that um, you are you are where you need to be at the time and trusting your gut about when you step in and out um, and also trusting your instincts about what you get involved in. Um, it might seem like a really exciting opportunity to other people, but if it doesn't ring true for you, then it's okay to say no. Um, and what I try and do is rather than just say no, I try and say no, but here are some people who might be able to do it for you. And I think that's the other thing is identifying other people so it's not um that we're broadening the experience that other people get yeah god it's a fascinating talk george i could just keep peppering you with questions i think <laughs> we haven't even talked about cattle ollie but <laughs> oh no yeah well that's really opening a can of worms the other thing we haven't talked about and it's part of this antola series which is is really cool and and part of alicia's vision i guess is uh, around raising awareness for and the important role that the Ronald McDonald House, uh, Ronald McDonald House charities play for um, country families, and, and you've spent a bit of time, obviously, currently with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, but also with 
Children's Health Queensland and the Hospital and Health Service uh, as a board director there. Why, why was it, uh, I guess, beyond just being recognised for your contribution to agriculture, but actually there's this, this other piece uh, of being an ambassador for Antola, and that is about helping to raise the profile and awareness for uh, these, these charities, which really do support families in the bush during some pretty challenging times. Well, they do. And, you know, when I when they asked me to consider being on the Children's Health Queensland board, I thought, you know, I've had three healthy children. I've got no medical experience. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm the least inclined to, to run into the doctor. Um, but I had seven years on the Children's Health Queensland board and I just, oh, I'm just so grateful. And it's an incredibly rich time in my life to be able to contribute to um, paediatric healthcare across Queensland. So, Children's Health Queensland is um, the only tertiary hospital in Queensland for paediatric services. And um, there are some paediatric services in Townsville now, which is fantastic, and some in Mackay, but it's quite limited as to where you can get that really specialised paediatric um, support. And I was there at an incredibly um, challenging time. We moved from um, Hurston, just north of the city, to the current site um, just on South Bank. Um, and I watched Ronald McDonald House being built. We'd had Ronald McDonald House at Hurston and we, we had a new one built just across from the Children's Hospital. And then as a board member, I actually got to um, serve. Uh, and literally we went and cooked pizzas one night and, and did some other things over there. I, I just saw how fantastic it was um, for regional families. I mean, these are people who sometimes spend months of their life um, dislocated and the way that Ronald McDonald House has been built in South Brisbane gives them an opportunity to be a family, but it gives them it gives them other things for their um, for the siblings. So while we've got a, a hospital school, there's also other opportunities for the, the siblings there, and there's an enormous network of um, partners who provide opportunities for those families and children. And um, I, I know many families who've had to access those sorts of services because they've been dislocated. Um, and I just can never underestimate the value of those charities to provide some sense of normality. Um, and I've also seen for people who just couldn't afford to stay in accommodation, um, but it's more than that because you're literally, you just walk across the road and you're with your child and that's the big thing, that you're right there, you haven't got to navigate the traffic and, and all those things, you, you're right there on site. Um, and then last year I, um, I wasn't on the board anymore as COVID developed, I finished up last year, but um, we were able to use some of that accommodation to actually support staff who needed to um, isolate and things as well. So there's just incredible things that Ronald McDonald, um, the house charities do. And I'm, I'm very passionate about us having um, incredibly good outcomes for our children and, and particularly for regional children's health. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's something yeah, really special. And I guess, similar to you uh, i've had a, a a normal upbringing so far i don't have children of my own but just you, I, I think it's one of those ones which we always know of someone or just the stories of, of the kids who are going through as well and it's um how can you make their time as as normal as you can uh, and ronald mcdonald house does such a good job of that yeah so i just i think it's great and Tyler's got behind that. It's just fantastic that you can you can buy work shirts and support a charity at the same time. I just love that sort of philanthropy. 
Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. And good quality workshops. It's um, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on for a chat, Georgie. It's been uh, awesome. I can't wait to listen back to this myself um, and for being part of yeah, the, the Antola series, but also the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thanks, Ollie. It's um, it's very humbling to have a, a shirt named after you um, and love what you're doing and love the stories you're sharing. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Georgie. Her career's certainly seen her in all kinds of different areas and in all sorts of organisations. But one thing that has stayed consistent beyond just the hard work is that from regional Australia with the right mindset and chasing those opportunities, anything truly is possible as Georgie's showing. We hope you guys are enjoying this Entola series. You can jump onto our website, www.humansofagriculture.com to read a little article and some quotes about each uh, each episode and if you're interested jump on instagram follow us at humans of agriculture with an underscore and you can catch up with all the different stories that we're doing across the week look after yourselves stay safe stay sane and we'll see you next week